0: Isaiah 60 verses 1 to 6. Arise, shine for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover the land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. And from Sheba will come, bearing golden incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And the second passage is from um, John, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth.
1: Thank you, Abby, for reading us the word of the Lord this morning. That's incredible. This morning, uh, I have the privilege of introducing our speaker. Um, It's my birthday today, so my birthday gift is that I... uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My birthday gift is that I'm—I have the day off, and someone else is going to speak. And I think it'll be a birthday gift to you too when you hear about uh, when you hear um, Father Dean speak. Let me just tell you a little bit about Father Dean. Um, back before he was Father Dean, he was just a normal kid growing up at the Regina Apostolic Church, and uh, his uh, pastor back then, Merv Switzer, baptized him. Uh, meanwhile, on the other side of the country, Darlene was attending uh, the Surrey Gospel Church, both sister churches to this one in our denomination. And uh, I, what I found out this morning, Darlene, that I thought was fascinating was your pastor was Dan Breen, who also pastored this church in Moose Jaw in the 1960s. So when hillcrest was not on a hill and was not called hillcrest but was actually on Hoshalega street where the church of god is now did you know that we sold our building to the church of god some people know that that was dan breen he was the pastor of that church in the late 60s and early 70s i think so uh so that's pretty exciting that uh that's a neat connection anyhow more about father dean he uh has served in different capacities. Uh, There's a lot that I could talk about and lots of intersection points. I feel like it'll be just constant name dropping here. Uh, But he, uh, one of the biggest, probably, I'll just cut to the chase, one of the biggest uh, ways in which a lot of people know him is he taught for many years at Eston College. And that was two different seasons of life, an earlier season, and then off to England to Durham to study. Durham's like the, you know, know, it's the bronze medal of... uh, um, English universities, you know, sort of like the States, you know, you got Harvard, Yale, and maybe Princeton, if you can't get into Harvard and Yale. Well, it's Oxford, Cambridge, and Durham's number three. Anyhow, so he, that's still pretty good, better than most of us, I think. Anyhow, <laughs> how do you like that for an introduction? Um, yeah, <laughs> and I forgive you for what? Never mind. Uh, <laughs> All right, now that everyone's forgiven. Um, So Dean, uh, eight years ago, I'm going to fast forward to the eight years. Oh, by the way, while he was teaching, I should say this, while he was teaching in Eston College, he had a few students that I I think are pretty important to mention, and that would be Chris Drennan and Kurt Buchanan. So whenever you see our associate pastors up here, you can think that part of their effectiveness, and they're incredibly effective, uh, is due to some of the teaching they received from Father Dean back in in the days. So lots of people know and have some sort of connection with uh, Dean and Darlene. But here's the one I want to just zero in on. This is what I want to zero in on. Uh, Eight years ago, uh, they were called to become leaders at the uh, St. Aidan's Church, St. Aidan's Anglican Church here in Moose Jaw. Now, let's just rewind the tape. If you went back to those days, and I want to give you just a bit of pastoral advice here. Leadership changes in churches. No one's the permanent leader. Even though Phil says, you know, wants me to serve for life. That's that's. True, but everyone's a transitional leader in the body of Christ. You're always going to pass the baton to someone else. And when the baton pass happens, you want that baton pass to be solid so that the next race can be even faster than the one before, or even more effective, even better. And so this is my pastoral bit of teaching for you this morning. Whenever you hear of a church that is lacking a pastoral leader, and whether that pastoral leader is appointed by a bishop, like it is in the Anglican, or it is uh, chosen or found by a search committee like it is in many other churches, would you pray that God would give that church a good and godly leader? A good and godly leader. This is really, really important. It's really, really important. And you know what I've experienced? I remember back in my very first church when I lived up in Nippon. Whenever there's a vacancy, there would be a number of pastors in town. We would pray this prayer. We'd say, God, would you give us a good and godly leader? And I remember at one church that had struggled for many years, and we had our doubts whether the gospel rang out there at all for many years. They got a new leader, and he was fantastic. And he came to meet with us for prayer. And you know what he said to us? He said, oh, well, this is how I came to be the pastor at this church. And after he told his story, which was a great story, we sort of interrupted and said, actually, It's not true. We just prayed you in. (laughs) So I believe God's hand has very much been on the fact that Father Dean and Darlene have come to St. Aidan's Church. In fact, if you had prayed and you said, God, please give us the best leader you could possibly give the Anglican Church in Moose Jaw, I think this is about as good an answer as you could possibly get. And I don't want to blow his head up too big so he can't preach. But I really believe that if we have great partners in the gospel in the city, we'll be way more effective. And we should be praying for the flourishing and blessing of every church that proclaims the name of Jesus and that, and that preaches the gospel. And so I absolutely trust Father Dean. That's why he's coming to preach here this morning, not just because it's my birthday and I need a day off. No, that's not the reality. The reality is... I think our partnership in the gospel with with uh, these leaders is very significant for the sake of Moose Jaw. So I want to bless them. I want to pray for them. And I want to pray for their church. Uh, they're inviting me to come back. Well, depending on how this goes today. But they're inviting me to, <laughs> to come back on the 22nd and speak at their church. That's very gracious. I'm not sure if I'm going to have to find a new wardrobe for the experience. But uh, would you stand with me? And bless these guys together. And then they're gonna, and then Father Dean's gonna come and bless us with the word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for gospel partnerships. We're thankful that when you said that there's a harvest out there that's white, that you you told your own disciples, pray for more workers. Pray for more workers to come into the harvest field. And, Lord, I got to believe that those who, who train and those who shepherd and those who serve uh, as lead, uh, leaders in their congregation, uh, like Father Dean and like Darlene, I, I got to believe that you want us to pray for those workers too. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, that you have given us a great um, partnership. I thank you that we have great history already that preceded even uh, Father Dean and Darlene coming to Moose Jaw. But Lord, we just ask that you'll strengthen uh, the ways that we bless each other, the ways that we encourage each other, the ways that we stand together, the way that we are more that we can be more effective together. Lord, I pray that you just strengthen that. Lord, even as we sang that song today about dry bones coming to life. Maybe we prayed for the city at that moment. Maybe there's people that prayed for the city. Maybe people prayed for their family. Maybe some of us were just praying for ourselves that our own dry bones would come to life. But Lord, we want to see that in our city and we believe that these kind of partnerships are essential. And so Lord, I pray that the trust that we have would be something, that there'd be bonds of trust like this that would grow and strengthen across your church family in this city. Lord, that we'd be able to build relationship, that we'd be able to partner together for a harvest, that we'd be able to embrace each other as we embrace your call on our lives, your mission, and even the fact that you have made us family. So, Lord Jesus, strengthen your church in this city, strengthen your work in this city, strengthen your mission in this city. I don't think I'm asking anything that isn't in your heart, so I just pray it with absolute confidence that what we're asking that you will do. So, Lord, thank you for your goodness towards us, and I thank you for your goodness in providing this partnership. We do bless Father Dean as he brings the word to us this morning, and may our hearts be just super fertile soil to receive uh, the word in your name. Everybody said? Amen. Well, Father Dean, come bless us. Give him a great big welcome.
2: (laughs) I've got the New Here Bulletin right here in front of me, and it's a delight to be new here. Although it's not my first time to preach uh, at Hillcrest, this is actually my second time. Uh, Thank you for that introduction. I was mention that briefly to Steve, that that's about as long as most Anglicans preach. (laughs) So uh, here we go. We'll up our game here this morning if we can. (laughs) Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So yes, it is an honor and a delight to worship with you this morning up on the hill uh, although some of you may only know me as uh, this priest from down the hill at St. Hayden. Uh, as, as Steve was saying, it's a delight to be back here with some former colleagues and sometimes students, uh, and it's a, it's a gift to be welcomed in this way. And we look forward very much so, although it's not my birthday, but it still will be a gift to have you back in two weeks down the hill. As a minister in this city, occasionally I get asked this. How many churches are there in Moose Jaw? And I always answer the same way. There's only one. But we worship in dozens of different places on a Sunday. This is the truth that we believe, but sometimes we find it hard to live. There is just one church because there is just one creator. There is just one Lord of all the world of all the cosmos, as John in John chapter 1 would put it. The marvelous lesson this morning from John's gospel alerts us to this reality in poetic and powerful ways. John begins his story, in the beginning was the word. John's perspective is huge. It's cosmic. It begins before time these words immediately of course tie Jesus story into the much broader story of scripture that reaches all the way back to the opening words of genesis but they're more than just a cover song of moses they are a new creation anthem of salvation john's birth narrative has strong vertical lines so to speak from beyond time to the created cosmos from heaven to earth from light to life from the transcendent to the imminent this is distinct from the other three gospel narratives as they bring out the beginning of their gospels in mark and matthew and luke each of them tells the story more along horizontal lines at least to begin with mark ties the story into the prophetic tradition by beginning with one of the greatest prophets of all isaiah Matthew begins the story of Jesus by connecting him to that line that extends all the way back to Abraham as a fulfillment of prophecy. Luke draws both on the prophetic tradition, of course, and extends genealogy all the way back to Adam. John's beginning, however, is bigger. It's cosmic. It stretches back to the beginning of all things from the time before time. Humans have long sought to pierce the divine mystery by looking up along that vertical axis, by reaching for the heavens, the stars, to space. In the biblical tradition, we see this early on in not really particularly helpful ways in the story of the reach for heaven in the story of Babel. In the Greco-Roman tradition, they look to the sun, they look to the moon, they look to the stars to reveal something about the gods, just last year, there were repeated commemorations of the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing of Apollo 11 in July 1969. Some of you may even remember watching that on TV. Space, the final frontier, was open in a new dawn, an age of discovery, and the unlocking of the so-called mystery of life had begun. And it continues to this day, by NASA and by billionaire explorers, too. Of course, it was the Soviets who first put the human into outer space and and pierced the outer atmosphere, so to speak, in 1961. Their astronaut, Yuri Gagarin, upon his return to Earth, supposedly said that he did not find God in outer space. The Soviet Empire, in their atheistic enthusiasm, made much of this claim in their propaganda at the time. They thought they had dealt a blow to all the superstitious nonsense about religion. C.S. Lewis responded to this assertion brilliantly in his essay entitled The Seeing Eye. He writes, Looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you'll find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. My point, he continues, is that if God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. His point is clear. We can't reach God by our own efforts or initiative or by racing to space. Determination isn't wrong. Dreaming isn't inappropriate. But if we think we can access the divine or find fulfillment or answer the deep questions of life by our own efforts, then we'll be mistaken, disillusioned, and often left in despair. You don't have to be an astronaut to realize this either. We know this from our own experience. Some refer to this as the myth of arrival. How many times have you heard something like this? When I graduate, then. When I find a spouse, then. When I have children, then. And then shortly after that, when the children leave home, (laughs) then. When I get that dream job, then. When I retire, then, when I have this much money, then, and every time we get to this place, the arrived then, we discover it's never enough. The myth of arrival is that it fails to deliver fulfillment. It is less, it is less, and often far less of what we had hoped it would be. It is not enough. And so often we set out then on a new mission, a new dream, something that will complete the puzzle of life. And in all this, I think, we make our arrival point our true God. And if we do talk about God, the Father of Jesus Christ, we do so more as a helper, our general contractor for building our dreams rather than the Lord of life who created the cosmos. In all this, it's easy to avoid God. Lewis, again, uh, from 50 years ago, his words are almost prophetic on this. He said, in contrast to almost all of Western history, in today's world, it's easy to avoid God. He says, in our own time and place, it's extremely easy to avoid God. Avoid silence, he says. Avoid solitude. Avoid any train of thought that leads off the beaten track. Concentrate on money, sex, status, health, and above all, on your own experiences. And your own grievances. Keep the radio on, live in a crowd, use plenty of sedation. If you must read books, select them very carefully, but you'd be safer to stick to the papers. You'll find the advertisements helpful, especially those with a sexy or a snobbish appeal. So, where there's hope? Where is the hope to be found? How can we find God? How can we reach the heavens? And here's the moment where I kind of wish that, that little, what's it called, the sermon bumper uh, song would kind of play, you know, that kind of great cosmic music that was playing a little bit while ago. I mean, how can we reach heaven? And John tells us that instead of reaching up, God came down to us. The glory arrived where we live. The word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled in our neighborhoods. Instead of reaching for the heavens, heaven comes to us. It's all grace. It's all gift. Shakespeare embeds himself as a character in his own play. The storyteller has entered his story. In a few verses after our reading from the gospel, if Abby had continued a little bit further, we've heard that John writing this, No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And then later in John's Gospel, Philip the Apostle will say to Jesus, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. To which Jesus responds, Philip, I've been with you all this time and still you don't know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Because of Jesus, We can see God. We can hear God and know God in ways that the prophets of old could only dream about and long for. Who doesn't long for that kind of connection? If you want to arrive and truly find who brings wholeness to your life, then look to Jesus. If you want to see heaven opened, look to Jesus. If you're thirsty for living water, drink the water Jesus gives. If you want to celebrate, drink the wine Jesus offers. If you're hungry for truth, eat the bread Jesus breaks for you. If you want to have eternal life, eat Jesus' flesh, drink Jesus' blood. If you want to know God, what his interests are, what he cares about, look no further than Jesus. And as you look to Jesus, you'll discover one of the main interests of God is this. If you want to know what God cares most about, it's you. It's you. It's you. If that doesn't blow you away, really nothing more that I could say will. But this answers the ache of the psalmist's question You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? John's answer is this, for God so loved the cosmos, for God so loved you that he sent his son. And yet, as John also acknowledges, even though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. For my money, that's not just talking about Israel. That's talking about the world. When God became flesh and dwelt among us, he did so in unexpected ways. He did not fit our expectations of greatness and glory. Lucy Shaw captures this unexpected wonder of conception in her poem, Mary's song, So Well, Lucy puts it this way in her poem, appropriate, I think, for today. She writes, His breath, so slight it seems, no breath at all, once ruffled the dark deeps to sprout a world. Charmed by the dove's voices, the whisper of straw, he dreams, hearing no music from his other spheres. Breath, mouth, ears, eyes, he is curtailed who overflowed all skies, all years. Older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free, blind in my womb to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn and for, to, for him to see me mended, I must see him torn. The one who descended to us was largely unrecognizable. John speaks about his ascent again too in no less unexpected ways because he was not lifted up in the glory the world expected. He was lifted up on a cross. The very hands that flung space and stars into existence were nailed to a cross, The Word became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us. Jesus became what the tabernacle and temple always pointed to. Jesus became the place of sacrifice and atonement. Jesus became the tabernacle and the temple for us in his own flesh. And all this was done for us. The cross on which Jesus hung is the supreme revelation of his glory. It is the place of exchange of his riches for our poverty, his obedience for our disobedience, his eternal life for our death. In the incarnation, the enfleshment of God is supremely revealed on the cross, the place where Jesus swallows up the whole cosmos and feeds us eternal life. God did not become flesh and dwell among us in order to live above and beyond the created world. He came to redeem the one we live in. As Sam Bush, an Episcopal minister, puts it, he writes, Contrary to what we expected, access to God is not through strength but through weakness, not in our far-off hopes and dreams but in places where we feel alone and scared and tired and guilty. These are the places, in fact, where God finds us and, and we find all. God's mercy if some of you need to have this fleshed out a little further then my suggestion is maybe this after this service is to go home and watch Netflix okay I have to admit I've never said that in a sermon so um, that was kind of exciting for me Um, go home watch Netflix now just to be clear I don't suggest this often well actually never Um, Mostly, it seems, that people use streaming services to escape from reality, to numb, or to simply self-indulge. Yet, there are sometimes stories that are told so well that they help us escape into reality. And the story I'm suggesting, I think, is one of them. Go and watch Episode 7, Season 3 of The Crown. I have to admit, I've not watched this entire series. I've only watched this one episode and one other one in season three. So I'm not necessarily endorsing the whole thing. So let's be honest about that. Um, and to be honest, I've been a bit tired, even though I used to for a long time been quite enamored by British sort of uh, uh, period peace series. Especially, uh, I've become disappointed, though, with the way that they portray the church. They either write it out altogether or they make... Um, Particularly in British sort of period pieces, they make priests, clergy look rather dull and stupid most of the time, uh, which isn't really encouraging for me, anyways. So, so when it came to the crown, I just ignored it. I ignored it for season one, season two, and then season three comes along. Uh, And I thought, they're not going to do any better, of course, um, in portraying the church or the robust faith of the leader of the Anglican church, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, They'll just probably show her faith as, as nothing more than incidental or irrelevant at best. I was wrong. And I owe my wife, Darlene, for showing me that even though a number of other theologians and preachers, um, maybe even Stephen, already has kind of picked this up and and preached on this. And I didn't know this was a thing, but I could have just shown clips of it here, apparently. Um, We just got the interweb down the hill recently. (laughs) But go home and watch the episode entitled Moon Dust. I'll give away parts of the storyline for you if you haven't seen it. But the writing and dramatic performance of the story is so good, I don't think it's going to ruin it. So it starts this way. Uh, Philip sits um, sort of as center stage in in this episode. Um, Philip, Prince Philip, has reached a point in his life where he's discontented with things, with his role, with his place. In particular, he finds Christian faith dusty and boring. On the way to church uh, worship one Sunday morning, Philip asks Elizabeth as they're walking in, what does church do for you? She answers that it offers opportunity for reflection and to explore the big questions. For Philip, however, the elderly preacher at St. George's Chapel on their Windsor estate where they worship does anything but. Instead of answering the big questions, he offers bromides. As he listens to the old priest, he scowls under his breath, this is not a sermon, but a general anesthetic. <laughs> After that morning, Philip refuses to attend services any longer and devotes himself to doing something useful with his Sunday mornings. Philip becomes obsessed with exercise. And then in particular, he's enthralled with the three American astronauts of Apollo 11, men of courage, men of action, living heroes of his. In effect, he uses obsessive exercise and hero worship to mask the pain of his devout mother's recent death and the personal crisis of not-enoughness that has enveloped his own life. In the midst of this, Queen Elizabeth finds a new dean to be the priest at Windsor Chapel, Robin Woods, a contemporary of Philip's. And when Dean Robin arrives at Windsor, he asks Philip if he might use one of the vacant buildings on the grounds for an academy for the personal and spiritual growth of mid-career clergy. A place, he says, to help them deal with the slump, the ceiling, the crisis that often accompanies this season of life. Instead of looking to space to answer the deepest questions of life, the new dean looks to something closer, to the living, incarnate heartbeat of Jesus in the life of one another. Dean Robin wants a place for clergy to recharge, to reflect, to raise their gain. Philip, a bit dismissively, asks, by doing what? Dean Robin replies, by thinking, talking, and reflecting. Philip is far from convinced. When Dean Robin finally gathers a group of priests for a retreat, he invites Philip to meet this first small band of clergy. Philip sits in a circle with them in the little house and hears them tell why they've come to St. George's house. He hears them tell what could be said of himself, that maturity of years had not been matched with maturity of wisdom, with job satisfaction, or with deepened insight or new revelation. Some of them express a sense of restlessness, a lack of direction, and a redundancy as more and more people find their spiritual needs being met outside the life of the church than within it. The dean asks them where people are looking for the answers, to which Philip blurts in, the moon. By this time, Philip has had it with this pathetic group of priests and tells them this I've never heard such a load of pretentious and self pitying nonsense. What you lot need to do is to get off your backsides and bloody well do something. That is why you're all so lost. I believe that there is an imperative in all men to make a mark. Action is what defines them. Action, not suffering. All this sitting around thinking and talking. Let me ask you this. Do you think those astronauts up there are as catatonic as you lot? They're not. They're too busy achieving something spectacular. And as a result, they're at one with the world. They are at one with their God. They are happy. That's my advice. Model yourself on men of action, like Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins. Those men are A+++. plus, plus, plus. They have the answers, not a bunch of navel-gazing underachievers affecting one another with gassy doom. <laughs> Except they don't. The astronauts don't have the answers. Eventually, Philip gets to meet those astronauts in person when they return to Earth and they go on sort of like a victory lap of sorts. In fact, he asks when they come to visit um, London, he asks for a specific 15-minute private meeting with them to speak with them, airmen to airmen. Philip wants to discuss humanity's greatest achievement. He wants answers to the big questions of life from them. His expectations, though, crash to the ground. He expected them to be giants, godlike, but in reality, they were three little men, pale-faced and with colds. They lacked the flair, the imagination, the spontaneity that Philip was looking for. In fact, all the things that made them great astronauts, he says, um, made them rather disappointments as human beings. And so, chastened, he returns to the clergy gathered at St. George's house, those blocked clergy he had originally wrote off and told off. He confesses his lostness to them, his jealousy of the astronauts, his inability to find contentment or satisfaction or fulfillment. In short, when he looks at his own life, he confesses just what the priests had done earlier. He says, I'm in the middle of a crisis. He's tried all the usual escapes, but to no avail. He admits that before his devout mother died, she observed something amiss in him, something missing. And what was missing was faith. So finally, he concludes, I'm here to admit to you that I've lost my faith, and without it, what is there? The loneliness and emptiness and anticlimax of going all that way to the moon and finding nothing but haunting desolation, ghostly silence, gloom. That is what faithlessness is, as opposed to finding wonder, ecstasy, the miracle of divine creation, God's design and purpose. What I'm trying to say is the solution to our problem is not in the ingenuity of the rocket or the science or technology or even bravery. No, The answer is in here, or in here, or wherever it is that faith resides. And so, he says, Dean Woods, having ridiculed you for what you and these poor, blocked souls were trying to achieve here in St. George's house, I now find myself full of respect and admiration and not a small part of desperation as I come to say, help me. Prince Philip and Dean Robin Woods went on, it says, to become lifelong friends, and we're told that for over 50 years, St. George's House has become a center of exploration and faith and philosophy. Its success is one of the achievements of which Prince Philip is most proud. So, in this season of Lent, uh, that may not apply to you, but it certainly does to me, in the season of Lent, which Christians in the church have for centuries used to remind themselves of their creatureliness and their complete dependency upon Jesus, their Creator, their Savior, and their Lord, I encourage you to watch Moon Dust and to remember that you are but dust, and to dust you will return. And yet... Hear this, Jesus loves dust. From the dust of the earth, Jesus creates you and me for his good pleasure. And for those who do receive him, who believe he was who he claimed to be and would do what he said, to them he makes them to be their true selves, their child of God selves. Jesus, he is here. He's with you. He lives in your neighborhood. As you look to him, you will see God's glory with your own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like Father, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish, from moon to moose jaw and beyond.
1: Thank you, Father Dean. I took lots of notes here. I won't read them all. I love that you said that access to God through is through feeling weakness. Um, and uh, I think you've made it very clear that we are often trying to avoid those feelings and we're trying to run after feeling important, feeling significant, or that our lives uh, we're trying to make them significant when we're ignoring what Jesus has already spoken about us and, and his words demonstrate towards us. Love it. Jesus loves dust. And that's what we are, bags of dust. <laughs> that's a great word for us. It's a great word for us. And I think it's a, it's a word for all of us, especially uh, tied with the, the reality that we do live in a time and where it seems like C.S. Lewis' words are have never been more appropriate, that we're trying to numb ourselves uh, from thinking, from solitude, from uh, stillness, and from being with God, and uh, it's that's the, actually the place we need in order to heal that that uh, that emptiness within us. We're going to spend some time. Just we're going to worship here this morning. Uh, Jesus at the center is the song, and I think that couldn't be more appropriate. Than to match up with what Father Dean has shared with us this morning, so we're gonna. I'm gonna invite you to stand and sing this with us. And those of you who are, um, uh, who have some of our members we're gonna pray for our memberships, the new, the new ones who've joined us. And um, so I'm gonna get them to, uh, while we're singing, come join me and the elders up at the front. Just come to stand at the very front pew, and as we sing together and reflect on our own lives, again, take what Father Dean has spoken, and respond back to the Lord. Maybe these words of the song will help you. Maybe some of your own words as you just whisper them or or declare them to God while others are singing will be helpful. But make sure that you don't just hear and walk away and be unchanged, but that you hear and receive and respond in the way that God is prompting your heart to respond this morning. So let's stand together as as the, the team leads us in worshiping the Lord.
3: Jesus at the center of it every- It's always been you, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus at the center of it all, Jesus at the center of it all, from beginning It's always been you.
1: This has turned into quite a partnership Sunday. We've already been celebrating our partnership with uh, St. Aidan's and Father Dean and Darlene and their leadership. They've come to bless us today with that, and so that's something that's already been celebrated. Now here's another piece